0: Look with me in, in uh, Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. I want to talk to you tonight about uh, God moving or God being on the move. One of my favorite books is a book written by C.S. Lewis called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a part of the Chronicles of Narnia series of books that he wrote. And I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, to my boys years ago. And it's a, it's a fantasy story, but there's some definite Christian allegory in it and some wonderful connections to Christian truths that we hold dear and precious. And in this story, uh, these three uh, children, they're all siblings, are uh, playing in this big house uh, owned by a professor, and they go into this wardrobe, and they find that it's a doorway into another land, a land called Narnia. And they get to Narnia... And it's winter time. There's there's snow and ice everywhere that they look. And as they meet different characters, they uh, discover that that an evil uh, queen has has been ruling Narnia, and she's and she's wicked. And 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 everywhere they look, it's just winter. It's it's bleak. It's it's grim. It's it's hopeless. And they run into this character. Now, I know I'm telling you more than you probably want to know, but they run into this character named Mr. Beaver. He's a beaver that talks, pretty cool. And Mr. Beaver is explaining to them what's going on. Winter, It's, it's winter in Narnia, but here's what he says. He says, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. Now, Aslan is a picture, a, a figure, if you will, of Christ. And you see that as the story unfolds how Aslan points us to Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And so he, he says it's it's winter everywhere you look, it's bleak everywhere you look, it's hopeless everywhere you look, but Aslan is on the move. And boy, when I read that it just it just resonated with me because everywhere we look in our contemporary landscape, things are bleak, right? I mean just look at the the news today, the the atrocities going on with with the the militant uh, uh Islamic fundamentalists in uh, the Middle East and Iraq, and and uh, the 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 racial tensions and, and rioting happening uh, in Ferguson in the St. Louis area, and and just everywhere you look, it just looks bleak. Every everywhere you look, it, it just looks hopeless. But I've got some news for you tonight. God is on the move. God is on the move, and we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that reminds us that God is always on the move. Even if you can't see it, even if you can't uh, uh, discern it, God is always up to His purposes, His plans, His will, His way. God is on the move. And so we're going to see God on the move uh, in this text uh, tonight. Now, just a little bit of background before we get into uh, your notes and before we get into the passage. You remember... Uh, that God appeared to Abram, and he said, Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a son, and through your son, I'm going to give you many descendants. That That uh, that lineage of yours will become a mighty nation, and I'll give this mighty nation a land in which to uh, live, and then I will use this nation to bless all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now, that's a a, a messianic promise, because... Jesus came through the Jews, the Jewish people, and he died on the cross for the sins of the world. So that if anyone from any tribe, tongue, nation, language, ethnicity, if anyone places their faith in Christ, they can be blessed with salvation. That's how that promise to Abram was fulfilled. So God made these wonderful, wonderful, powerful, majestic promises to Abram. But then there was a delay before they came to fulfillment. So Abram has to walk by faith. And, and we see Abram, chapter by chapter, high moments, low moments, uh, soaring, struggling. We see him walking by faith, trying to cling to those promises that God had made him. And so Abram is a, a wonderful example of what it means, what it looks like to walk by faith. And, and we want to draw some application from his life and, and apply it to our own faith journeys and so let's think about God being on the move as we think about trusting God clinging to his promises even though things look bleak I want to show you two ways that God was on the move in this chapter and and I want to say to all of us tonight that he's still on the move in the same ways in 2014 so if you look there in your notes in these chapters we see first of all God on the move to save the world God on the move to save the world. Look what it says in chapter 18. God had just appeared to uh, Abram again, changed his name to Abraham, uh, reminded him of the promise, I'm going to give you a son. Even though it doesn't look like you can have a son, you're advanced in years. Your wife Sarah is advanced in years, doesn't look like it's going to happen, but I'm going to give you a son. You're going to name him Isaac, which means laughter, which points to the laughter of Sarah when she heard she was going to have a son. Her, her, her doubt and her unbelief. But he says, I'm going to give you a son. And he into and he this, this covenant with him, this promise, this agreement. And uh, as a sign of the covenant, uh, Abraham uh, is circumcised and all of his household. And so we see this wonderful covenant uh, being put into place at the end of chapter 17. Now look what it says in chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. It was, uh, it was customary to provide hospitality in this day and time when travelers came passing through. He says in verse 4, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servants. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seeds of fi- fine flour, knead it and make cakes. I thought that was funny. Just, you know, he didn't help cook. He just Anyway. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man and prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now, who are these three men who have come to Abraham's dwelling, who Abraham's going to spend some time feeding and entertaining and showing hospitality to? Who are these three men? Well, look what it says down in Verse 13, one of them speaks and it says, The Lord said to Abraham, now notice there that the word Lord is all capital letters. See that? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see all capital letters, the word Lord in the Old Testament, it is uh, representative of the divine name of God. Sometimes pronounced Yahweh or sometimes pronounced Jehovah. That, the, the word Lord in all capital letters stands for that divine name. So this is God. This is God speaking to To Abraham. Some believe this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Godhead. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ uh, speaking to Abraham. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? So we know that, that one of these is the Lord. Well, who are the other two? Well, look what it says in verse 16. Verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. So, The men set out, looked towards Sodom. Who are the men? We'll look with me in verse uh, 20. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. If not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And so the men are heading that way, but the Lord is staying there for a moment with Abraham. And look what it says in chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom. So if you put all that together, these three men were uh, or three uh, that appeared as men were two angels and the Lord himself. Pretty pretty important company, right? Pretty important company. And so Abraham is showing hospitality to the Lord and these two angels. It reminds me of the passage in Hebrews that says when you show hospitality, sometimes you are entertaining angels unaware. You just never know. When you show kindness to someone, when you help someone, you just never know who you might be helping, right? And, and this happens in Abraham's life. Now, these are the messengers, the Lord and the two angels. But what is the message? Why did they come to Abraham and Sarah? Why did they come to spend some time with them? Well, look what it says in verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, "She is in the tent. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So again, he's reiterating the promise he had made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So he said, this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She was beyond childbearing years. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. And so they come, these three come, with a specific message. Abraham, Sarah. You're going to have a son this time next year. A mighty, miraculous work of God. God was going to do the impossible through their lives. Give them a descendant. Now, you say, Wade, why is this such a big deal? Well, this is a a reminder of promises that God had made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2, and 3, Genesis 15, 1 through 6, Genesis 17, 1 through 21. Over and over again, God keeps saying, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. And even though God delayed and Abraham couldn't see how it could happen, God wanted to remind him, I'm going to give you a son. Now, why is God emphasizing this so much? Why does he keep appearing to Abraham? Why is he spending so much of his divine energy on on reminding Abraham he's going to give him a son? Well, if you look there in your notes, God was executing his plan to bring redemption to the world by giving Abraham and Sarah a descendant. Again, back to Genesis 12, I'm going to give you a son. Through that son you will have a mighty nation of descendants. That, that nation will bless the world because one day I will send a Messiah through that nation that will die for the sins of the world. And so by God appearing over and over and over again to Abraham and reiterating his promise over and over and over again, what God is doing is God is working out his plan. God is doing something way back in Abraham's time to provide salvation for people in 2014. Pretty cool, right? So this passage is ancient. It's about nomads feeding three passerbys, but this passage is about you and me. Because this is God working out his plan of redemption, giving Abraham a son so he can build a great nation through whom he can send the Messiah. And we know this is what God has in mind because look what it says in Genesis 18, verse 17. Genesis 18, verse 17. The Lord said, as they're thinking about Sodom now, it says in verse 16, they set up from there and look towards Sodom. More on that in a minute. It says, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. Here's his plan. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. That's the plan. Once again, he'll become a great and mighty nation. I'll provide salvation through his people that will bless all the people groups on the face of the earth. So he reiterates here he's thinking about how he should relay this news about Sodom to Abraham that he is going to make him a great and mighty nation. Look at verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So what God is doing here is God is executing his plan of redemption. Now listen to me. God redeeming a lost and dying humanity is the story of all of the Bible. The Bible is one story. It's 66 books written by different authors in different times, in different circumstances, in different languages with different vocabularies, but the Bible has a beautiful unity in that God inspired it all. God Breathe through human authors, so they were writing down his very words, truth with no mixture of error. And all of these 66 books are, are pointing to one great story. God is, ha- has done something, is doing something to save folks. And, and this story uh, in, in, a, in a microcosm uh, in the life of Abraham is the big picture of the Bible. All of the Bible is about God working out his plan to save a lost and dying world. Any, any passage you name in the Bible, it has something to do with God redeeming humanity. It has something to do with God providing a Savior. Any passage you look at, it all points to God's ultimate fulfillment of salvation in his Son, Jesus Christ. And so in these chapters, we're just reminded that God is on the move to save the world. He was in Abraham's time. He is in our time. Now, in Abraham's time, he was preparing to send the Messiah. In our time, he's already sent the Messiah, and he's working to to convict and draw people to himself and give us power to preach the gospel so folks can be saved by Jesus. But God is working in our world, actively working to save people. God is on the move to save the world. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Because when he saved you, that was him moving in your life. And he's still moving today. Now, let me show you another way that God is on the move in this passage. Not only is God on the move to save the world, but secondly, God is on the move to judge wickedness. God is on the move to judge wickedness. We see that in chapter 18, verse 16, the men sit out from there and they look down toward Sodom look what it says in verse 20 the Lord said because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave I'll go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me and if not I will know and so the Lord says I'm going to to look at Sodom this this of course God knew what was going on already he's omniscient but he's going to to as a way of saying that he has complete, total information to make the decision that he is about to make. And so he turns his attention toward Sodom. And, and we see that the angels go to Sodom, and through a series of, of tragic events, God sends judgment on Sodom. We'll get to some more of that uh, in a moment. But let me give you just some thoughts as we think about God judging wickedness, some lessons, if you will, that we can learn from God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Some lessons we can learn from God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah that we need to think about and apply in today's time. Lessons learned in God's judgment. And by the way, he wants us to learn a lesson from this. He wanted Abraham to learn a lesson from this. Look what it says in chapter 18, verse 19. I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness, and justice. He says, one of my purposes for Abraham is that Abraham teaches his descendants what it means to be righteous. I want them to learn from the judgment I'm about to send against Sodom and Gomorrah. So what are some lessons learned from God's judgment? Here's the first one. These are in your notes. Even though God is patient, there is a time when his judgment will come. Even though God is patient, and I'm so grateful for His patience in my own life, even though God is patient, there's a time when His judgment will come. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that uh, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He, he, the reason He's delayed in, in returning uh, uh, is because He wants more and more people to be saved. But there is a time in the divine heart of God when the Lord will say, Enough. And he will send his son Jesus Christ to this earth to set all things straight. And we see here that God was patient. Earlier in Abraham's life, he said, The the the, the wickedness, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, I'm gonna give them some more time to see if they get right. But they never got right. And so God has had enough. And God is going to send his judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. So God is a patient God. God is a gracious God. God is a loving God. But if you don't respond to his love and his grace and his mercy and his salvation, then you will experience his judgment. And so we never know when that time is going to come. And so you need to get right with the Lord while you have opportunity. If If you're here tonight... And you don't know that you're saved. If you were to die right now and you're not sure you would go to heaven, we don't know that we will have another day. We don't know if we will awake to, to tomorrow. We don't know if we'll make it that far. We don't know that. Get right today because God is patient. But if you don't respond to him in the time that you have, you will experience his judgment. So even though God is patient, there's a time when his judgment will come. Here's the second thing we learn from God's judgment. Wicked people need intercessors who truly care about them. Wicked people need intercessors. The word intercessor means someone that prays for someone else. That truly care about them. Look what happens in verse 22. This is interesting of chapter 18. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. These are the two angels. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Sodom and Gomorrah, if I find 50 righteous people. But Abraham knows that stretching. Look what he says in verse 27. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there, he answered. For the sake of 40, I will not do it. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. He said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this one. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. We know uh, that... God judges Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19, so there weren't ten righteous people in the city. But notice here that God is relenting of his wrath, uh, the timing of his wrath, uh, in response to the intercessory prayer of Abraham. So listen to me. We're going to learn from Abraham's walk of faith. If you see evil all around you that's deserving of God's judgment, what should you do? You should pray for those folks. You should pray that God will be patient. You should pray that they would get right with God. You should pray that revival would come. You should pray for others. You should be a powerful intercessor. And the Bible is full of of intercessory prayer for example over in exodus 32 remember when moses was up on the mountain getting the ten commandments and aaron was down with the people and they had all this gold jewelry that god put on the hearts of the egyptians to give to the israelites and moses delays so they say hey let's make a golden calf that we can worship and say that's our god hey real quick insight here Notice that the blessing of God in giving them the gold jewelry became an idol that they worshipped. Did you know that God's blessings can become an idol? He can bless you with material things, with, with wonderful things. And if you're not careful, you'll start, you'll start worshipping the gifts rather than the giver. And they had all this gold... And, and they, they made a golden calf out of it. And Moses comes down, and he sees what's happening, and he's, he's enraged, and God is enraged. And, you know, from God's perspective, he had just delivered them from Egyptian bondage and slavery. He had parted the Red Sea. He had destroyed Pharaoh's army. He had provided for them. And God had been so good and gracious to them, and yet they still wanted to worship a golden calf. And Moses knows, knows it's about to get bad. And so in Exodus chapter 32, Moses goes to God and prays. He said, God, would you, would you relent of your wrath? Don't, don't destroy them all. You remember what God told Moses? Moses, I'll destroy them and start over with you. Remember that? And Moses, with a broken heart, prays that God would relent in terms of his wrath on his people. He wanted his people to change. He wanted them to be saved. And God backs off and does not wipe out the Jewish people at that time. Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 14. Again, God sends great judgment. And Moses prays and intercedes so that God will lift his heavy hand of judgment. First Samuel chapter 7. Uh, Samuel prays on behalf of the people of Israel. Verses 3 through 5. Uh, that they would be forgiven of their great sin against God. And Listen. Hebrews 7.25, you know what the Bible says? It says that the Lord daily lives to make intercession for you and for me. You know, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, right? And then after he died on the cross for our sins, he rose from the grave. And then what happened after he rose from the grave? On the earth for about 40 days, then what happened? He ascended, he went back up into the air, the disciples saw him go up into the air, and then where did he go? Right hand of the Father. And what did he do when he got there? He sat down, right? And Hebrews 7 says, As our great high priest, he is at the right hand of God, praying, interceding for us. And, and listen, if we know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, every time we blow it, every time we blow it, it's as if our advocate, Jesus Christ, is there at the right hand of God, and he says, Father, Father. I died for that sin. My blood covers that sin. My blood has washed away that sin. And Jesus is constantly praying for us and interceding for us just like Moses did, just like Abraham did. I'm so grateful for Jesus' prayers. But wicked people need intercessors who truly care about them. You say, wait, I don't like the the direction America's headed. I don't either. Things are bad. I almost can't articulate how bad things are. That's how bad they are. Things are critical. I I my my major concern and even fear is for my kids. What they're going to experience in 10, 15, 20 years because things are rapidly coming apart at the seams. It just, I can't believe the things that are tolerated in our culture, the things that are celebrated in our culture, the things that are discussed in our culture, the things that are laughed about in our culture, things are unraveling quickly. Really more quickly than I thought was possible. And it looks bleak. But what if, what if we became a mighty army of intercessors? And we say, if America continues to go down, it's not going to be because I was prayerless. I'm going to pray for my nation. I'm going to pray for my leaders. I'm going to pray for my church. I'm going to pray for the wicked. I'm going to pray for revival. I'm going to be a a mighty intercessor, just like Abraham was. Wicked people need so I'm going to pray for them, Right? That something would happen, that they would come to their senses, that they would change and get right with God. We learned that lesson from God's judgment in this passage. Here's another thing we learn about from God being on the move to judge wickedness. Another lesson, if you will. Righteous people in the midst of the wicked can delay God's judgment. Righteous people in the midst of the wicked can, can delay God's judgment. Again, God, if you find 50, will you destroy it? Nope. Forty-five? Nope. Ten? No. And so, we can just take God at His word. If there would have been, listen, ten righteous people in Sodom, God wouldn't have destroyed it. Right? That's just the plain reading of the text. If there would have been at least ten, God would not have sent His wrath. Wow. Wow. And so, we need to... We need to emphasize how important it is that we live righteous lives in the midst of the wickedness all around us. As a matter of fact, turn over to Philippians with me in the New Testament. Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, look in verse 14. Do all things, all things, everyone say all. You've heard me say it before, all is a small word with big implications, right? Do all things... Without grumbling or disputing. Now that, listen, that verse right there will help a lot of folks. (laughs) Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And look what he says next. That you may be blameless and innocent. Here it is. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as light's. "...in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." Paul's saying, listen, when you see darkness all around you, that's your opportunity to shine. And, and, and darkness is troubling, and, and, and evil causes us concern. But listen to me, the darker it is, the brighter the light shines, Correct. And so I submit to you that the, the trouble our nation is in right now is a wonderful opportunity for God's people to shine like we've never shined before. But to shine like we've never shined before, we've got to be blameless. We gotta be righteous. We've got to be innocent. We've gotta we gotta hold to the word of life. We've got to be serious about the things of God. We've got to pursue God and seek his face and be and be and be devoted. To following Jesus. That, that's what we've got to do. We've got to let our light shine, right? The old children's song, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Hide under a bushel, no. Won't let Satan blow it out. I'm gonna let my light shine. And we see that that righteous people in the midst of the wicked can delay God's judgment. I believe that if we continue down this path where we're going as a nation, judgment is coming to America. Devastating judgment. But I believe if God's people will rise up and really get serious about the things of God and let their light shine, we can possibly delay that judgment and give our nation more time to get right. That makes sense? And so... Your righteous life can, can, can really make a difference. If there's darkness around you at work, let your light shine. If there's darkness in your family, let your light shine. Stand for truth. Do the right thing. Speak often of Jesus. get in the word, be a person of prayer, Share your faith. Be loving and kind. Let your light shine. Things are, are dark in your neighborhood. Let your light shine. Your righteous living for the glory of God can really make a difference in our nation. I really believe that. We learned that from Abraham. Here's another lesson we learn from God's judgment. God provides a way of escape from his judgment. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. Look what it says in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he, he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. He made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So again, Lot is showing hospitality to these angels like, uh, like Abraham did. But before they lay down, so wait, how bad was Sodom? We're about to see how bad Sodom was. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. They all have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do them as you please. Awful. Isn't that awful? Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. They pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. It's a riot getting ready to happen. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. We see the wickedness here of the men of Sodom that want to have uh, their way with uh, angels they perceive to be men. And and, and and Lot says, do not act so wickedly. Now, let's, just, let's just back up for a minute. Let me just say this. God has ordained... That, that intimacy between a man and a woman in the boundaries of marriage is a wonderful, beautiful thing. God's idea, alright? Anything outside of those boundaries of a man and woman in marriage is sin. Fornication, which is sex before marriage. Adultery, sex outside of marriage. Homosexuality, sex between two people of the same gender is a sin. All of those things, pornography is a sin. Anything other than sexual intimacy between a man and a woman in the boundaries of marriage is a sin. And listen to me, we got to be clear on that. Because, because what we believe the Bible teaches about that is going to be under attack. And it is an under attack, and it's going to be under attack in an increasing way in in the coming days. I believe, here's what I believe, I believe that if anyone speaks out and says that homosexuality is a sin, that they will be labeled as people of hate, and their speech will be called hate speech. And here's what I believe is going to happen, so just hold on to it for a minute, all right? I believe that they're going to target churches that, that teach that message, and I believe what's going to happen is they're going to take away any tax benefit uh, that comes from our charitable giving to the church. I believe that's going to happen. They're going to say, well, if you're, giving, if you're going to a church that, that, that is a church of hate speech, then you don't get the tax. If you want to give to Peace Corps, that's fine. But we will not give you a tax benefit, a charitable deduction for giving to Longview Point Baptist Church that believes that sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the boundaries of marriage. That's coming. You say, well, what should I do then? Just keep being obedient to the Lord. God's faithful. He'll, 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 he'll carry you through that. He'll carry us through that. But, but notice here that, that these men were wicked. Very, very wicked. And it says in verse verse 12, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, these are the angels. Sons-in-laws, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place. They had crossed the line. They had crossed the line. We are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us... To destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons in law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons in laws to be jesting. Now listen to me God was sending his judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. And we need to be clear and say, Listen, sin is sin. Sin is sin. We need to to say uh, that things are sin that the Bible calls sin. But we also need to say, Listen, God offers you forgiveness. God offers you compassion. God offers you a way of escape. He's going to offer Lot and his family a way of escape. And God offers everybody in our culture today, no matter how far gone they are, he offers them a way of escape. The way is called Jesus. He's the way to be saved and, and, and forgiven and changed. And so we, we, we as a church, I want you to hear me clearly. Me as a pastor, you as a church, we've got to, we've got to be consistent in and holding strong to our convictions about right and wrong. But we've also got to preach compassion that there is forgiveness found in Jesus. And if you repent and turn to Jesus, uh, then God will do wonderful things in your life. And so we want to we hold on to both of those aspects when it comes to speaking to a lost and dying world. We want to speak the truth, but we also want to point them to the truth about Jesus Christ. And we want to be consistent about sin. Um, I remember I grew up in in a, in a church in Perry, Florida, and and we had a training union. Everybody know what training union is? Five o'clock Sunday evenings, you had discipleship training. Then it was changed to discipleship training, discipleship life, something like that. And when I was growing up, it was training union, and we had one man in the church, a layman, that would teach training union every, uh, every week. And it doesn't matter what passage in the Bible we were talking about, he always started railing against homosexuality. Now, homosexuality is a sin. The Bible's very clear on that, very clear on that. But listen to me, come in close. It's not the only sin. Sex before marriage is just as sinful as homosexuality. Right? Adultery, just as sinful as homosexuality. So we got to be consistent. We can't just pick on one sin, right? We need to we need to be clear and and hold forth the standards of God's word, but we we dare not just pick on one sin while turning a a blind eye to all the other sins. That's not consistent. That's not biblical. That's not that's not of God. And so We need to hold out the message that God will send his judgment because of our sin, but he provides a way of escape, and he provides a way of escape here for Lot and his family, which points us to the ultimate way, the picture of Christ giving us a way of escape uh, through his death on the cross. So God provides a way of escape from his judgment, just like he did for Lot and his family. We can say to anybody on any corner of this earth, God will save you if you'll turn to Jesus Christ. That's good news, isn't it? No matter how broken your life is, God will will save you. He'll forgive you. He'll change you. My friend Larry Logan says, God can unscramble legs. I like that. God can unscramble legs if you just give your life to the Lord. It's just that simple. God provides a way of escape from his judgment. Now here's another thing we learn from God's judgment in this text. God means what he says. God means what he says. Chapter Nineteen. Look what it says in verse uh, twenty-three. Verse twenty-three. Actually, back up to, um, back up to verse fifteen. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Why was Lot lingering? Get out of there. Take the way of escape, right? Seized him by the hand. The, the angels are dragging them out of Sodom. The Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside the city. As they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Watch this. Do not look back. Do not look back. Or... Stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. So God was clear through his messenger. Do not look back. Flee God's wrath. A way of escape. Don't look back. Is that pretty clear to you? Look what happens in verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But, look at verse 26, Lot's wife behind him, what you do? Looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, what do you make of that? God says, Don't look back. She looked back, became a pillar of salt. God means what he says. Right? If we miss God, if we miss God's will, It's not because God's not clear. God's clear. Don't look back. Don't look back. And we see that Lot's wife looks back. She becomes a pillar of salt. Sad ending, tragic ending to her life. God means what he says. You can take him at his word. Here's the next thing we learn from God's judgment. We should learn to not love the world. Do not love the world. Now, it says there that Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, we're to learn a lesson from this because look what it says over in Luke chapter 17. Turn with me to the New Testament book of Luke. If you're still with me, say Amen. If you feel like murmuring and grumbling, say amen. All right, look what it says. Luke 17, verse 32. In the context of God's judgment that's coming upon the earth one day. He says, well, look back up to verse 28. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on that day, uh, when the Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. When Jesus comes back and said everything right. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. And so Jesus here is speaking, and Jesus wants us to remember that we should not look back. Question. Why did Lot's wife look back? Answer, because her heart was still in Sodom. She loved Sodom. As wicked as it was, she loved Sodom. That's where her heart was. She loved the world and she paid dearly for it. As a matter of fact, turn to 1 John 2 with me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. The Apostle John here writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the Bible is clear. We as believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, should not fall in love with the things of the world. And by the world here he means the the ungodly uh, system and the ungodly people that have rebelled against him. So we should not love ungodly things. We should not fall in love and idolize ungodly people. We should uh, love Jesus and follow him and love his truth. Not fall in love with the world. But Lot's wife was in love with Sodom. And she turned back and she turned to a pillar of salt. Do not love the world. I could, I could preach an entire sermon about that, but we're going to go on to the next thing. Next, God's judgment. We're talking about lessons from God's judgment. God's judgment should motivate our holiness. Say, wait, when I read Genesis 19, if you turn it back there with me, what should that do for my walk with Christ? It should motivate you to live a holy life. Learn some lessons. Don't trifle with God because God means what he says. But Lot's daughters and Lot, they didn't learn the lesson. Look what it says in Genesis 19. A sad, sad ending to this story. Genesis 19. It says in verse 27, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. We don't know why he was afraid to live in Zoar. But he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Again, awful story. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. He was that drunk. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Hold, I lay last night with my father, let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our fathers. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger all arose and lay with him, and he did not know where she when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn born bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben ami He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Both the Moabites and the Ammonites became enemies of Israel. Abraham's descendants. So, wait—that's a depressing end to this chapter. It absolutely is awful. The Bible is 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 not pulling any punches, is it? The Bible's being very real about the sin of. Lot's daughters and the sin of Lot's drunkenness. And it just comes to a very, very tragic ending with lasting consequences between Israel and the Ammonites and the Moabites. Instead of Lot and his daughters seeing God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and motivating them to holiness, they did not learn their lesson, did they? They continued to live, or they, they entered into wicked behavior. They did not learn that you should not trifle with God. Lot's daughters had got out of Sodom, but Sodom had not gotten out of them. They had grown comfortable in Sodom, and Sodom had rubbed off on them. And we see that behavior, that wicked behavior to even conjure up such an idea in this text. When we know that God is holy, and we know that God is a God who will judge wickedness, it should motivate us to live holy lives, amen? Lives that honor Him, not lives that call for God's intervention. Alan Ross writes this. How should one live then knowing how God would judge the corrupt world? The point was clear to Israel. It should be clear today. No good can come of loving a society so morally bankrupt that it awaits the swift judgment of God. If not in a temporal judgment, certainly at the end of the age. In other words, there's nothing that's going to nothing good's going to occur in our lives from us loving sin and loving wickedness. We need to be lights in the world and point people to truth and point people to the way of escape that's found through Jesus Christ. And so it's really a troubling story, a hard-to-read, hard-to-fathom kind of story, a story of great dysfunction and great evil, but there are some lessons that we can learn from it. Let me give you the third truth about God being on the move, and we're going to finish up. I'll take some questions for a moment. First of all, in these chapters we see God on the move to save the world. In these chapters, we see God on the move to judge wickedness. But third, we see that God will accomplish his purposes. Now, I want you to know that when God wants to do something, it's flat going to get done. That was a great place for an amen. You see, I'm trying not to prompt amens because that gets old after a while. When I say amen, you say amen. It gets old to me, old to you. So I'm trying to do better and not say amen all the time. But that was a great place for an amen. So we'll try it again. All right, we'll, uh, we'll try it again. When God wants to do something, he's flat going to get it done. You say, wait, what is about God that assures that he accomplishes his purposes? Well, there's some insight in this text. First of all, he knows everything. He knows all. He knows all. Look what it says in Genesis 18. Genesis 18, verse 14. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. How did God know that Sarah laughed? He wasn't in the tent. He knew that she laughed because God knows everything. The the theological term is omniscient. God knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the past perfectly. He knows the present perfectly. He knows the future perfectly. And because he knows everything, he has, listen, he has the wisdom to work everything together just like it needs to work together to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Now, I don't have the wisdom to accomplish everything I want to accomplish in life. You ever failed at anything? Raise your hand. Yeah, I mean, there's things I want to get done. And because I don't know everything and because I make unwise decisions or I have limited knowledge, I I fail at the task or fail at the purpose that I want to achieve because I don't know everything. But God knows everything, and because God knows everything, he can get the job done, right? He knows all. Secondly, God will accomplish purposes because nothing is impossible for him. Nothing is impossible for him. Chapter 18, verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Here's the question we all need to consider tonight. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is a resounding no. Nothing's too hard for God. Theologians call this the omnipotence of God. He's all powerful. He has all uh, power at his disposal. And he uses it to accomplish his purposes. You know, if, if God were good, but not powerful, he might want to save us, but he, he just couldn't get it done because he had limited power, right? And if God were all powerful but not good, he would use his power as a way to, to, to harm us or to ignore us. But because God is good and powerful, He can accomplish His purpose, He will accomplish His purpose, of providing salvation and and granting salvation to everyone that places their faith in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing is impossible for Him. To, To drive this point home, turn to Mark chapter 9. New Testament, Mark chapter 9. We're almost through. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John... Mark chapter nine verse seventeen. Mark chapter nine verse seventeen. This is Jesus dealing with a uh, a boy with an unclean spirit, a demon. Someone said from the crowd. Uh, someone from the crowd answered him, "Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes wretched. How many of you know that Satan is a destroyer? This demon is trying to just destroy, him, isn't he? Just, just destruction. And, and guess what? Satan wants to do the same thing to you, the same thing to your family, same thing to your kids and your grandkids. He's a destroyer. The Bible tells us for a reason that we need to." Put on the full armor of God and stand in the strength of the Lord, but more on that later. He said, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. He answered them, "Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. and He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, Mm. and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Can you imagine seeing your son go through that? A demon trying to throw him in the water to drown him or throw him in the fire to burn him? This next sentence. But, if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. I love the response of Jesus. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, (laughs) you mean if, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief, help me understand Jesus, help me to, to comprehend, help me to grasp that you're all powerful. That's what he's saying here. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came Running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And Jesus heals this boy. What's going on here? Jesus is showing his great power. And he says, if you can, nothing is impossible with me. Just believe. And so if you find yourself struggling with the idea that God is all-powerful and the idea that God can handle your problems and the idea that God can can achieve his purposes in a, a, a world that seems out of control, if you struggle with that and you struggle with doubt and unbelief, say, God, help my unbelief. Remind me that nothing is impossible with you. Remind me of your power. Remind me of your omnipotence. We go back to Genesis chapter 18 and 19, and we are reminded that God accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. And I'm so glad that God wants to accomplish redemption, salvation, grace, mercy, love. Let's pray together for a moment. God, I'm grateful that you're on the move, just like you were in the days of Abraham. You're on the move to save. You're on the move to deal with wickedness and evil. And one day, when the dust settles on human history, we will see your perfect wisdom and perfect justice as Jesus makes all things new. And you deal with all the the wickedness and evil that is so pervasive in our world today. We are grateful, Lord, that you are all-knowing. And we are grateful that you are all-powerful. And we are grateful that we can trust you. So God, help us to realize, just like Abraham, that you're always on the move. And there is hope for our world today. We ask it and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming.